this is uh, quickly taking a left turn into a therapy session, but I think you're right. <laughs> a lot of my conversations are like that. <laughs> Not necessarily on podcasts, I just mean in general. <laughs> Welcome to the long-delayed second episode of And Thereby Hangs a Tale. With you, as always, is me. Wait, should I even say my name? <laughs> I don't know. I'm new to this. Uh, uh, it's Adam. Say, wait a minute. Let's not get bogged down in that. Who do we have on the horn this month? This is Harrison Wheeler. Harrison Wheeler, yes. He's a cartoonist and mental health advocate. He works in creating better spaces for the mentally ill in the workplace, among other things. And raising awareness and creating better dialogue about mental illness has been the driving force in his work for a number of years. And that's not what we're going to talk about today. Instead, Harrison's going to tell us a story that starts off with a simple flu. Oh, I hope it's more dramatic than that. Let's find out if it is. It was in the summertime um, of 2011, and uh, I started kind of having like flu-like symptoms. My, you know, just just felt like a regular flu. So to see a bunch of doctors, and they said get some rest. That flu became kind of a ma- massive headache that wouldn't go away. What do you call what do you call big bad headaches? What are those called? Migraine. Migraine, thank you. So I went and saw a migraine specialist and a whole bunch of MRIs and stuff, and everything was fine. Uh, really just kind of looking at the the symptoms of something that ended up being much larger. Naturally, your first instinct is to go to a doctor, but when you go to a doctor and you're just some guy saying, I have a flu, but it's bad this time, well, the response is not that sympathetic. Uh, I was turned away from two <laughs> emergency rooms because they, I think they thought that I, were, I was there just to kind of score some drugs because <laughs> I just kind of like, I kind of like fit that bill. I was a bigger dude with a big beard and, uh, <laughs> and I looked like hell. <laughs> okay. Maybe the, maybe the last, the last part would be the, you know, uh, the closeness to someone who would need some drugs. But when do you insist upon being seen when you know that you're sick and you're more sick than doctors realize. The yeah, when I realized that it, this wasn't just a flu and it wasn't going away, and I'd seen a number of doctors over the space of about four to six weeks or so, like I was going after work constantly to another specialist and um, not not feeling better. When that when it finally dawned on me that this wasn't going away, in fact, it was worsening really quickly. It was terrifying, man. Like it was terrifying, and I was living on my own uh, north of uh, or northeast of. Uh, Toronto at the time in Whitby and and I need I know I needed I knew I needed support so I I go trained it down I was dating Celeste at the time in, in Burlington uh, my now wife um, and really didn't think I was going to make it to her house because she was at work and I was like oh you know what I'm trying to tough it out uh, I think maybe I could just walk it off a little bit I'll just I'll just go train it then I'll walk it off to your house and that was the longest walk of my life and that's where things really just. Uh, just downward 
downward spiral. I just nosedived. And then it was, as I said, probably four or five days later, I was in a coma. A coma? Oh, now I feel really bad about what I said earlier about this story potentially not being dramatic enough. Well, I should first state that this was an induced coma. This is a medically induced coma. So this was a coma that was forced upon me due to um, the failing of my autoimmune system. My body, yeah, essentially stopped working. I had developed an autoimmune disorder and uh, my feet and my hands and my arms, my legs, just progressively from the extremities up through my limbs uh, stopped working. This was just, it all just came falling, falling in. So yeah, so the flu, the apparent flu got extreme and um, I, you know what, I honestly can't even remember exactly how it all happened. I just knew that I just couldn't feel my feet I couldn't use my legs properly. Standing was difficult. Sitting was really hard. You have this flu for about six weeks. It's getting progressively worse. And now it's downright scary. Your body's starting to fail. At what point do you stop getting turned away from hospitals? When does somebody realize what this is and can name it? Uh, there was one really brutal night um, staying with my family in, in Niagara, and uh, I just could not sleep. I could not, couldn't sit. I couldn't lie down. I couldn't walk. I couldn't, you know, anything. Uh, and so finally, we we borrowed a, a wheelchair from the neighbor and just like booked it to uh, booked it to Hamilton. And I saw a doctor who finally be, was able to put his put his uh, his finger on it, and it turns out it was something called Guillain-Barre syndrome or Guillain-Barre syndrome. It only affects like one in a thousand people. It's super rare. Uh, it's like the, the body starts to kind of attack itself when there's been uh, an invasion of bad blood cells, you know, in the system. So the, the nerves basically just start breaking down. That's, what's, well, that's what happened. Like, so my nerves in my body just started dying. So Guillain-Barre syndrome affects one in a thousand people. As for the cause? Doctors don't know why the body attacks itself like that, like why that's the response. And oddly enough, I had kind of Googled my symptoms and I had come across this term GBS. I had written it on my hand kind of in like scrolled letters. Um, And uh, so when he mentioned it, I was like, yeah, that sounds like what I, that's what it sounds what Dr. Google thinks it is too. So what happens after you're diagnosed? The short story is I woke up two months later. You're put into a coma like that? How do you even prepare yourself and your loved ones for what's about to happen? Like that part of me going, okay, I need to to get treatment and I need to tell my family that happened within about 45 minutes because it was, it was that touch and go. Like my body had degraded to the point where if they didn't take that spinal tap and put me under and, and stabilize me medically, I would have just died. What was that last day like before you were put into a coma? My consciousness was already kind of going in and out. Um, but for legal purposes, some guy, a doctor, I presume, sat down with me and explained what was going on and what needed to happen. Um, and he gave me the breakdown that um, that they're going to need to keep me in a a secure state for a long time, just to stabilize me, I guess, uh, or try to stabilize me. He said, in order to do that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> You, you're not going to be able to eat or drink uh, for quite a long time. And we're going to have to um, administer the spinal tap needle, which I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to see that thing. But but that is unreal. Uh, it's like probably as long as my forearm um, and goes 
into and up your spine. Wow. And this is kind of funny. It's actually, I think it's funny. That's a good start. That's a good start. It's a good setup. <laughs> God damn it, Harry. Release the tension already. That's how I always started my act. I was like, oh, I think it's funny. And then I would say nothing. <laughs> the joke is my judgment. That's right. <laughs> when you, I imagine that, you know, when the spinal tap came, that uh, that you were just really hoping. It's like, oh, I hope that's a colorful name. That's just a nickname for it. It doesn't actually go in your spine. Yeah. Well, and he was pretty adamant that I don't look at what's going on. And I couldn't really turn my head anyway. But he's like, this is this is nothing you need to see. That sounds like really good advice. Yeah. At that point, I was like, you know what? Please just do whatever you can, because I was in a ton of pain um, and whatever's got to happen. I didn't understand what he was telling me. I was just kind of just trying to make eye contact and hoping that it would speed up this whole process and they would help me. Right. And so before they put me under, they had to they had to gas me, basically. Um, He was like, do you have any questions at all? And I was just so hungry because I hadn't eaten in like a couple days. I hadn't slept in like a couple days. And I just said, do you think I could get a sandwich? Just a, just a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me as though I was the slowest man on earth and said, uh, I'm, I'm afraid that's not going to be possible. In fact, you're not going to be eating for quite a long time. That's the worst thing you could say. And that's literally what I remember before they, they kind of put me under. W- were you horrified or were you just like, oh, nuts? I think I just referred it to like a four-year-old. It's like, come on. If a man asks me right before he's about to be in a medically induced coma, I have one request. Can you, can you, can you make me a sandwich? I would say, sure, there's lots of sandwiches coming your way, buddy. And I would just like walk away and let you fall soundly to sleep because you're not going to remember that. And if you do, as you've just vividly told us on this podcast, I would just say, no, he's lying. I would just gaslight you for my medical reputation. Yeah, I think that would be a really nice thing to do. Yeah, I'd be a good doctor. I think we should go back in time and talk to that guy. And actually, I remember now, like he had a real look of of petrified fear on his face. That's also not good. <laughs> also not good. Like he was, you know, I found out later that it was pretty touch and go. Like this wasn't, this wasn't like, oh, you know what? You're not feeling that well. Let's, we're just going to put you in a coma, fix you up. We'll get you out of here. This wasn't like a, you know, you weren't booking your car into the garage for a couple hours to get some transmission fixed on it. Like this was literally life or death. And I, I don't think that, I mean, I certainly didn't understand that. That being said, I would like to comment on the surreality uh, of the dreams that I had while I was in the coma. I mean, I've done my share of drugs. Mm. I've done a lot of drugs. Nothing compares to that. Everything was like red lighting and the walls were literally bleeding. Like they were just like the most visceral, thick almost like purple blood, probably heavily uh, informed by what was happening around me in, you know, at ICU, not the most restful place in the world, um, quite loud and, uh, and uh, lots of people coming in and out and lots of other people screaming and um, just a scary place. But at no point do you, are you experience this, this and thinking, oh, this is a dream. No. But you still have your sense of self. So there's, I guess, much like a nightmare, 
usually, or, or even a particularly vivid dream, you almost feel like this is real, like it's really happening, like you're just you're just in it. So there's no sense that it's not reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably the best way to ex- that's you know the best way to express express it. Yeah, that, and hence why I was so freaked out when I woke up. I was in there. I woke up two months later and I was paralyzed from the neck down. And I had wasted away, like I'd lost probably about 90 pounds. And I had a beard. I had no idea where I was at all. I think my father was in the room. And I think Celeste was in the room when I when I finally woke up. There was obviously some medical people there too. And uh, they did their best to... Because that's a that's a really dangerous time too when a person wakes up from a coma. You know that uh, the reentry needs to be delicately handled, as I've come to learn. And I'm not typically the freak out kind of guy. I usually take things pretty much in stride. I'm a pretty mellow individual, but I freaked out because I had no idea what was going on, and it was just like beeping, beep, you know, lot, lots of beeping and bright lights, and I couldn't use my body. You could see the panic on my family's face and everything. So they tried to explain to me where I was and what had happened, and I just wasn't registering. I didn't remember any of it. As a family, we've gone over the story a number of times. It's helped jog my memory, and I rem- I do actually legitimately remember it now. But the doctor who was on call or the nurse, the head nurse that was on call that night, uh, made a snap decision because I was freaking out that much, and my you know my heart rate and everything was just like skyrocketing. And they made the snap decision to move all of my vital machines, whatever the hell I was on to kind of a, like a mobile version of that. And they wheeled me outside because, uh, they wheeled me through the, through the ICU, which is my, which is the, you know, like the only, the only coma joke I really have is when I woke up from my coma and, uh, the nurse was beside me and I said, where am I? She said, I see you. And I said, I see you too, but where the, where the fuck am I? Yeah. Anyway, no, it's not just, we'll just leave it. <laughs> Did the panic set in when that joke flopped? <laughs> Is that what it happened? That was the only joke that I ever thought of <laughs> while I was in a coma. I was like, okay, I got a, I got a zinger for these guys. When I wake up, oh man, I'm going to hit them hard. That's that's I think what but what you know your friends and family would be thinking. You know, as they're sitting there watching you, visiting you, you know, reading Le Petit Prince to you, trying to engage with you, uh, and 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 then they're like, oh man, when this fucker comes back, I hope he's got a tight five. <laughs> tight five. <laughs> You better have some new bits. I'm sick of shit of his old bits. Can't stand looking at all these depressing get well cards over the last two months. Just, just like, you know, hit me with some fresh material. and They were they were all out of Garfield, so you're in a coma cards. I thought Mondays were bad. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. They wheeled me outside, and it was cold. it was December at that point, so it was mid December already. They had to you know put me in blankets and everything, and we went out to the middle of the urban park, kind of chill out area in front of St. Joseph's there, and and the fresh air was extremely good, really hard on the lungs um, initially. No, I wasn't even breathing on my own then. I was still on a, on a respirator. I was everything. I was totally like still Johnny Artificial, right? So. It took a while. It probably took me a good five, five to 10 minutes before I started to calm down. And, you know, my mother was there, my father was there and my, 
uh, girlfriend uh, and everything. And, and they were just, you know, tell, you know, repeating over and over to me what had happened. Don't you remember coming to the hospital? You know, we entered here, you weren't feeling well. And then things started kind of slowly, slowly uh, registering. And I just remember having this, it, you know what, I don't know how many times I've, <laughs> I, you know, honestly, man, I can't even, I can't even uh, articulate what it felt like. I don't know what, I don't know what that felt like. I can't remember. There wasn't like an, uh, like a real emotion attached to that. That's, you know, in the regular dictionary of emotions. I think I had this sinking feeling, but at the same time, there was relief because I realized that whatever that was beforehand, once I remembered whatever the hell that was beforehand, that things were under control. And I, you know, I should mention at that point that the doctor that was with us outside was really cool. And he kept saying over and over again, he's obviously uh, pretty skilled at what he does is that, you know, this is the condition you have and recovery is um, possible. You, you have, you know, your, your future of your recovery is, is bright. Not to exclusively focus on the horrors of this, but did you recognize yourself at all when you woke up or, or, or were you even like able to, to, to look at yourself? Was there some sort of mirror? Was there some sort of thing which you could catch your reflection off of? Like, you know, is it just the brain deprived from like any kind of visual where you're only seeing your family and you're, you know, reading their emotions and you're already discombobulated or are you waking up? You can't move, uh, say from the neck up and you know you you've got a you've got a beard and you don't recognize your your limbs you don't recognize your body you don't recognize your appearance at all like how exactly like how exactly did all of that register um and and when did you become aware of it i don't think i saw myself for a long time i could see my legs and they looked like old man legs well the following 4 months were really, really challenging, right? Because I had to learn how to walk again and use my hands again and breathe again and swallow again. And, you know, I had the, the tracheotomy for the longest time because I was under for such a long time. And uh, anyway, it's it was, you know, an adventure. At what point did did you feel this sort of victory of, oh, my God, it worked? Uh, because of course your initial reaction is just shock. You can't comprehend all this new information about your surroundings that are just suddenly jumping into you from what you vaguely remember of your last moments before being induced. Like, uh, at what point was it, was it like, Hey, I won. It's like, it's, it's going to be a recovery process, but you won. Uh, cause you mentioned how difficult it was to try and get back to it. Like, but you do look back on it fondly for lack of a better term now like this was ultimately a good thing like when when did when did that happen though like that that of itself is like a connection of dots that was not immediate i assume yeah i i just made the decision to, to think of this as a rebirth and just to shelve a whole whack of stuff like sp specifically my career that i just did not like i, had, I was a vice principal when i when I went under, I was, I was a vice principal of a college doing my master's, but I, at the same time, if you really want to get into it, I'm writing this novel that was essentially an allegory of my life, uh, and writing it out desperately to finish it because I kind of felt like there was this Monty Python foot that was going to come out of the sky and kill me. Oddly enough, I 
finished my first draft of that novel and it was a week later that I was in a coma. And that's Jester's Incognito. Yeah. So I had finished a draft and I'd worked on it feverishly for three years. Yeah. I spoke, I had one really good session with a psychologist when I was, um, later on in my rehab and, uh, I kind of told him where I was at and, and we flushed a lot of this out, um, together because there's this whole philosophy of narrative psychology where, uh, and, where, you know, artists will, certainly with their first works, will literally write out uh, a fantasy version of themselves, uh, which is essentially like, you know, it's 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 um, self-manifestation, I suppose, right? Um, you're trying to literally create the person that you would like to see you become or or the world in which you'd like to live, right? Um, which can be very dramatic and uh, the birthing process can be really intense. Uh, anyway, he suggested that I don't touch the um, the draft for a while. I At the end of my stay, I sent it off to a number of close kind of creative confidants to, to look at and to, uh, to edit. Um, so I was happy that they were doing that. Um, but it was only within, I think, a month or so of my return to home that I started working on the edits and it was like, and this, and the story made so much more sense to me at that point too. I've always known what I wanted to do, but I felt, um, an unspoken pressure to, to, to conform or to just to get a real job kind of thing. And like, you know, be a success in terms of social strata and money. I mean, I, I had already dealt with over a decade of mental health and, and substance abuse issues. Uh, which are completely related, totally related. Uh, it's the exact same problem. I just couldn't uh, couldn't fit in, kind of thing. So no, I mean, I became a vice principal largely because of just it was just happenstance. I happened to fit the bill. They needed one. They said, "Well, if you're going to become a vice principal, you got to do your master's." I was like, "All oh, right, well, if I have to, I suppose." And so I just started doing that, and I didn't really like either of those things. I guess the societal pressure to kind of just conform and get a real job, and and that was literally making me sick. And I think that's one of the things that just my body just couldn't take anymore. That's the way I like to interpret it, at least. You heard it here first, folks. Capitalism kills. It's true. It does. <laughs> it does. It's weird is that I said that as a joke, but that's a thing I truly believe. <laughs> oh, it 100% does. No, no. I mean, there were moments. I'm not going to, you know, paint it with a I'm not whistling Dixie, that's for sure. Not the entire time. I mean, I had moments where I broke down and cried and, and um, I felt really, just really defeated, you know. Um, but uh, luckily, I come from good stock, good German stock. Get up, get up and walk again, you Wiener schnitzel. I love, I love the, this is perfect about this is that it's like, you know. It's perfect for a man of German lineage to be like, you know what? The real reason I got better from genetics. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. According to my phrenologist, I'd be fine. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Th there's, there's that difficulty, but like how long you said, like it's, 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 was it four months? Did you say of, of, of like physical uh, uh, recovery until like you are like, functional or semi-functional or like how, how like what's that process like when does when does it look like at the very least then when does it look like there's an end 
to the recuperation process. Like not that you're there, but that there is an end there and you are getting better. And thus you have this kind of sense of what you will be like and, and, and a possible return to normalcy. Like when does that, when does that happen and how do you feel about it? It's, it's that traumatic that you need, you just need time to recover. But I, you know, just, again, I'm really lucky uh, because of my genetics. I went on long-term disability from work and they were awesome uh, with the support. So I had tons of time to like sleep during the day and write for a couple hours or not a couple hours, more like, you know, an hour and just, you know, again, how often do we have time in our lives where we can just kind of like stop and stare out the window for months? Like we, you know, it sounds ridiculous, but it was a gift, man. Like I really thought like this was a, this was a, a rest and a break that I needed. And clearly I wasn't going to give myself just because of how hardwired I am. You know, I basically, as soon as I could walk again and had any consistent amount of energy, I, you know, self-published the book and uh, started doing improv and then wrote a one-man show about not even the coma part of the experience, just a little bit, but, you know, kind of what was happening behind the scenes when I did the book, when I was writing the book, I should say. And it's been kind of nonstop ever since, right? I feel like I've got better balance and uh, I've learned to say... Uh, you know, those three magical words that I think we should all teach all young kids these days. Fuck that shit. Fuck that shit. But it doesn't mean be lazy. It doesn't mean say, you know, like, oh, I don't want to do that. I'm just going to sit at home, smoke pot and play video games all day. Still have to work hard. But you just don't work hard at the shit that that will that will hurt you, literally hurt you. Now, I'm not asking for myself, Harry, but uh, I got to ask, what if your if your dream is to be like the world's biggest stoned out guy who played the most video games? <laughs> well, then you better work hard at that. You take that you take that seriously. Um, you're on leave to to recuperate and you are recuperating and you're ta- you're able to take it at your own pace by the sound of it, but like how long is the leave? And 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 when 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 are you like more upwardly mobile like maybe not 100 percent, but like you're able to walk around and do things again how long did that take um well so 2011 uh to 2012 i wasn't back at work technically until the fall of i don't even remember I guess maybe the summer of 2012, maybe the, it was almost two years. Uh, let's just say the, the fall of um, 2013, I think. It was quite a long time. They had, they had asked me to come back because, I mean, legally, uh, you know, insurance companies um, to make sure that everything is on the, on the, on the level, they need to ask the, the, uh, employee to come back and see if they can fulfill their old duties. So there was a period of time and it wasn't very long that I went back and like had to kind of hobble my way through being a vice principal for a few days in a row. And it was just impossible. There was no way I couldn't keep up. Like I, like I, I, I mean, I do consider myself decompensated. I don't think I'm disabled. Um, even now to this day, like sometimes I have a hard time keeping up with conversations uh, I just can't, I, you know, I don't have the same kind of speed, uh, that I used to. Um, 
so what happened was is that uh, that was established that I couldn't do that job anymore. So they very graciously created a role for me, um, a work at home role as a curriculum developer and uh, some social media um, work as well, because they were starting to build that part of the school out. Um, so that was perfect. Uh, I could kind of like just get the work done when I had the energy. And um, I ended up staying in that capacity for two more years with those guys, um, which was amazing because it afforded me the ability to build my career as an artist at the same time. Um, I was really efficient with my energy and just kind of, you know, got the work done, um, but made sure I, I played pretty hard in building, you know, building the art side and my cartooning and the comedy and, um, yeah, yeah. So it was a lot, it was a long, uh, you know, LTD they call it, um, and uh, but then the best thing, the, the the gift of all gifts, is when in 2015 they let me go. I I I had become redundant, and I was like, "You <laughs> are so right. I've been redundant for a long time. I finally I was born <laughs> redundant. I was born redundant. Um, so now you see the light, and uh, you have released me from my shackles. Um, it was a, it was a great gig because I could stay at home and, and work as I needed to. Like that was another gift, right? Um, so now I've switched careers completely and, and, uh, I'm still, I still maintain that I need that space and, uh, it's been good. And, um, you know, we don't talk about the, co- the, we don't talk about the coma very often around the house, to be honest, because I think it was far more traumatic for my loved ones than it was for me. Um, to see someone you care about who is literally like basically dead for two months. Um, Celeste says she, she actually will experience some flashbacks when she sees me just sleeping Um, because she was there every day, you know? And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's really scary. It really hit my dad pretty hard. Like, there's residual trauma, right? Like that, that's something that exists for sure. Six years later, I still have to do my exercises every day. I do physio like all the time because I have, oh yeah, because I have to maintain, maintain it, right? Like there's, I can't remember exactly what the, what the terminology is, but it's essentially, again, this is the lovely term of wasting, right? If you don't, because the nerves haven't regrown, they're still really weak. And atrophy will affect anybody. If anybody sits and does nothing for a couple of months, they're going to start to waste away, right? Yeah, you got to keep it up. Um, and that's no big deal. It's, uh, I don't know. It's like, man, huge wins. Like, I never thought I'd run again. I used to love running. I can totally run. Like, it's awesome. Um, and uh, yeah, again, this is another gift where it's like, okay, the body's telling you that what you were doing before was not working. Uh, and what you need to do now is like strengthen everything. So I've just decided to embrace it. Right. So now I like eat like a monk and I, you know, do all the, I do all the do's, right. I meditate and do my physio and exercise and all things that I kind of had like just kind of skirted when I was younger. I kind of knew that those things would be good and, but I needed the push, I guess, to, 
to get into it f- hardcore. Now I can't help but ask. So you're you're the man who 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 lived through it, and the question is this, Harry, uh, which is, do you now sit down and watch films and TV that have comas as a, as a plot point or characters who have experienced them? And just fucking get enraged and go, that is bullshit. That's not at all what I experienced. I have an aunt who, um, who's amazing. She's this awesome uh, confidant for me and it's just been an awesome person my whole life. Um, I don't know what she was thinking, though, because I had just learned to walk again. I had a walker. I was in a wheelchair for months, learned to get graduated the walker. Anyway, so my aunt says you need what you need to do is rent uh, the diving bell and the butterfly. <laughs> she said you will just love it, dude. That was the most horrifying movie to watch. I also rented all three seasons of CBC's The Odyssey after having been in a coma. Yeah, like who would who would I don't I still don't understand. We talked about it. She thought, no, it was just a really, you know, I thought you'd relate. I mean, I fucking related all right. One of the key features, if the key feature of the book is that he's a, he wants to write his book and, but he's comatose. Like he, he's paralyzed completely, no recovery prognosis whatsoever. So they go through, and this is where I think they may have even developed the alphabet system of writing. So it was like literally like one blink. So, so a nurse would stand there with the alphabet written on a board and they'd point to each letter and he would blink for each letter that he wanted to go down next in his book. And he wrote a whole fucking book like that. And like I went through that just to tell people that I was hungry or thirsty or I had an itch on my left butt cheek or something. And it only it only I only had to do it for about a month or so, but it was painstaking. Mm. You know, it was brutal. Now, in fairness, his book is just called Ah. <laughs> Thanks again to Harrison Wheeler for sharing his tale. If you want to learn more about his work in the field of mental illness and raising awareness about it, you can go to his website, harrisonwheeler.ca. It's got cartoons. It's got info about his novel. Check it out. It's well worth looking at. Now, next month on Thereby Hangs a Tale, it's a secret. But let's face it. It's a new year. It'll be the end of January. Uh, Let's tell a story of change. That's vague enough to keep you interested, isn't it? Cue theme music. Music. 